So Stella, you know how oftentimes people recognize the overlap between eating disorders and gender dysphoria, you know, and Mm -hmm. we we tend to talk about it like, well, this kid has both an eating disorder and gender dysphoria. And today our guest is really interesting because she struggled with really profound eating disorder when she was a kid. And she thinks they're actually not quite different at all. She has been thinking about this and writing about this and received some pushback for her her willingness to say, you know what, I think that some gender dysphoria is exactly the same thing as my very intense anorexia. It's a body hatred. It's trying to make myself smaller, cutting off parts of my body, hyperfixation. So that's what we talk about today. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about our guests? Yeah. Yeah, glass switch. Victoria Smith is uh, really thoughtful. I met her. I was on a panel with her at uh, the Women's Place kind of event in London there a few weeks ago. And as soon as she started talking about body hatred and body loathing and being a woman and stopping your sexual body and I thought oh my god we've got to get her on yeah now she she has a new book coming out uh called hags the demonization of middle-aged women and she she has been a regular contributor to the critic to the new statesman she's often written on women's issues and mental health so I think this is a really really interesting interview yeah, we talk about so many aspects of, of eating disorders, the kinds of treatments, force feeding or not force feeding. And then, of course, we talk a little bit about uh, what Victoria describes as like this fear of becoming your mother, essentially, and yeah. how that might be a contributor to a lot of fears young women have about growing up. It was a fascinating conversation. So I guess with that, we'll uh, introduce Victoria. Hi, I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Through in-depth interviews, personal stories, and psychological exploration, we probe the gender landscape within contemporary culture. And we consider the implications of prioritizing personal identity over other aspects of the self. This is the thinking person's take on gender. Join us as we look at gender from a wider lens. Well, hello, Sasha. Hello, Stella. And hello to our guest, Victoria Smith. Thank you so much for joining us today. So you're known as Gloss Witch on Twitter, and you've been writing about uh, women's issues from the feminist perspective for some time. And you've written a lot of highly insightful pieces about gender dysphoria and as a condition, as a socio-cultural phenomenon. And um, maybe we can start as we do with many guests with, you know, where were you at when this gender dysphoria thing came across your radar? I think you were writing about this early, like you think you said in 2014. So can you take us back to that time? Um, Yeah, it was something I'd been discussing with friends who were interested in feminist issues just on the topic of the idea of being cis and what it meant. We were trying to look into that. We're trying to read things and make sure we were using the right language and being inclusive and reading Julia Serrano and all these things. And and I started to feel some real discomfort with this idea that um, if you're a cis woman, you identify with the gender you're assigned at birth and you identify with your body and you can't possibly understand what gender dysphoria is like. You know, you you've always felt really happy and comfortable in your skin. And it just didn't seem to make sense to me, particularly because I'd had a history of eating disorders mm. and particularly with anorexia. And an awful lot of articles that I read that were explaining what it is like to have gender dysphoria just seemed to me 
that describes a lot of how I felt as a teenager. And mentioning it to other women, they said, oh, I felt a bit like that as well. Mm. And so I wrote an article about it in um, early 2014, just explaining, you know, if I, I don't feel what it, I'm not trans, but what people say cis is, I don't feel like that either. Mm. So what does it mean? And there was quite a lot of pushback against that, which basically was saying, oh, but anorexia is completely different. You don't understand it. Like anorexia is an illness. Anorexia means you're mad. Whereas gender dysphoria, that's just like being who you are. It's knowing who you are and you've got to be supported to be your true self. And it's, it just didn't make sense to me. And no matter how many times people told me that I was just wrong on this, I'm the more I thought about it, the more I just felt I wasn't really. Yeah. It it feels to me like it's 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 very easily kind of encapsulated in the phrase body loathing or self loathing or yeah. rejection of your growing self. Yeah, and it's a, a very unnatural, horrible thing to hate your body and not want it to grow and to want to remove bits of it or bits of it not to exist. You know. I, one of the things I wrote about in that first article was, you know, I was obsessed with not having periods, not having breasts, not... that Those were almost like measures of whether I was good at anorexia, whether if I could mm. keep myself in this kind of frozen in time state. And obviously then I'm reading about this, all these girls wanting puberty blockers and not wanting to grow. And, and it just seemed... That just seems very similar to me. And there's always been this kind of elements of female body self-loathing that has expressed itself in different ways through different generations, I think, and throughout history. And I think sometimes we see it in a political context and sometimes we don't, but it seemed that gender dysphoria was in this magic kind of, you're not allowed to politicise it, you just have to accept it, it just is. But it, if you you have people who are female doing the same things and wanting the same things to their bodies that girls who we would say hate their bodies mm-hmm. are doing and wanting so it, it doesn't seem different to me and I know that to some people that just sounds a terrible thing to say and it sound, it's read as invalidating or saying um, I don't believe you're who you say you are mm. and it's not, it's just I don't believe your pain I believe your pain but I don't believe it's sort of unique and separate in the way that you think it is, I think It's something that you share with lots and lots of female people, lots of people across generations and, and that there is a political context and it's not a necessary pain. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think that even before we got on the call, we were talking about how in, in a hundred experiences of anorexia, of course, there are going to be a lot of overlaps and common denominators, but there's a lot of variation. And I think the same is also true in gender dysphoria. Like I've definitely worked with young people whose gender dysphoria experience is almost identical to the experience of, of certain eating disorders and anorexia. And then for other people, it's much more about, um, almost like presentation and aesthetic and style and embodying some kind of masculinity, but there's no like deep seated body hatred for some people. And those people may not go on to medicalize, for example. So I think it's, it's so important for us not to throw the baby out with the bathwater as we try to make space for, you know, this gender aspect of gender dysphoria, because some of it really does look like 
this eating disorder cluster of experiences. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about, if you're comfortable, your experience when you were a teenager? Because obviously that created a foundation for you to look at the current gender dysphoria phenomenon with this lens, right? So what was it like for you when you were struggling with an eating disorder? And how do you think it overlaps with gender? Oh, yeah, I was, I mean, this was the late 80s when I first became ill. And I was um, an early developer and felt very uncomfortable about having breasts early on, starting periods early on, and started dieting when I was in my first year of secondary school. And that escalated very rapidly. And I was hospitalized when I was 12 and force-fed wow. and hospitalized a second time and was on, put on a regime where you were basically weren't allowed any what they call privileges like books or seeing people or phone calls or anything or to get out of bed until you'd gained a certain amount of weight and after that I kind of for most of my teens kept myself at a low enough weight to just not be put in hospital again kind of thing and was very isolated from other people my age and and it, I, there weren't many other people I knew at the time with eating disorders I kind of used to kind of hunt out stories of eating disorders I think there's a thing where you can get a bit kind of like what you call thin inspiration or pro Anna mm. stuff I used to kind of try and find in magazines and autobiographies and and that's I suppose an embarrassing aspect of it that I used to be very quiet about because it I used to think oh well that makes you look trivial that makes you look like you're just wanting to be ill and I think there's mm. parallels there with what people talk people don't want to talk about social contagion with gender dysphoria because they think it makes them look unserious and as though their pain isn't real and I don't think that's true at all yeah. I think it's just if you've found this way of coping with all the pressures that are on you you hunt out other people who are doing the same thing and look at what they're doing and find ways to support it and then when I, I went to university and then lost a lot of weight and things got very bad so I dropped out in my second year and that was the first time I entered a treatment program with other people with anorexia this was in Oxford where they had quite an advanced treatment program that didn't have any forced treatment okay. in that but um but that was the first that was a time when I became really aware just in a group of other people with anorexia mm. it was like everything cut you it was quite competitive and everyone's symptoms calibrated in a way and it wasn't like we were consciously kind mm. of deciding let's all be ill together in the same way but it was kind of if someone ate something in a particular way you felt you should as well or you were faking it or you shouldn't be there or maybe you were too fat to be in mm. it was really it's quite a strange experience and it it was kind of mixed like yeah I'd gone from being treated completely on my own with the force feeding to being in this environment which was very supportive but in some ways it kind of fed and perpetuated the eating disorder in the same way I don't know how you can get around it mm. in some ways, really. But um... could I ask a couple of things? It's fascinating, and I'm really glad that you're speaking about it because I feel it's very important that parents who are who can feel so disconnected with their child, especially if there's gender distress, because they just can't compute what is going on. I think it's very important that you just put it in the context of mental illness. It can manifest anyway, whether it's gender dysphoria with an eating disorder or gender dysphoria 
or an eating disorder, it's still manifestations of a, a gripped mind that is convinced yeah. that they will be better if they are that way. And th- there's a couple of things that I think is important to highlight. And I have so many questions for you. But one is the feeling of, as far as I know, the anorexic mindset, they truly think this is me. I am skinny. Very like this is my real self. My real self is not any mm. sort of weight on me. And the other question after that would be, um, how did it catch you at 11? Where were you at 11? How did it, I know you, you grew, you, you developed early, but I wonder what was it that, like hospitalised at 12 is, is really, it really caught Very you young, quick and yeah. hard. So I'd be wonder, interested in your thoughts around that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I can remember sort of, I've got very vivid memories of things like getting changed for PE and being aware of other girls' bodies and, and thinking, oh, I could never get like that. I could never, like, need to wear a bra. You know, that's just, you know, like, I just, I, ha- I did have this idea that they were almost a different species to me. Like, I'm not going to be one of these people who gets hips and breasts and periods and all that because I just found it unimaginable, the thought of it. You know, that it really was like, that just is not me kind of belief and... And I find it quite odd because sometimes I look back and I think, but what, what did I imagine? What did I think was going to happen? How did I imagine myself at twenty or thirty or forty? Did I think I'd be like that forever? But it, I never thought that far ahead. I just thought, in each day, you know, I never, you know, and people would say things like, "Oh, don't you want to have children?" or "Aren't you worried about osteoporosis or whatever?" And it was just like, no, I just have to like Today. not be like them. Yeah. I'm not like them, and I can't be like that. And, and I suppose it, it kind of ties into a lot of things I've been thinking about more recently with that book to do with ageism, just this kind of idea of looking at older women and thinking, I can't be that, you know, that's not going to be me. But it, I, I really did feel that, um, you know, if, if I'd had a friend who was starving herself, I would have told her not to do it. Yeah. But with me, it was like, actually, no, no, I actually can't have the kind of body other girls my age have. I just can't cope with it. That would that wouldn't be my body kind of thing. But but, yeah. but I think, I mean, I think when I was 11, I think there were lots of pressures on me coming down. And I think it was a way of coping with it. I mean, it, I mean, not going into too much detail, I had my brother had disabilities and there were, it caused quite a lot of pressure at home. And there was also this kind of pressure on me to... Um, my parents had quite rigid ideas about gender, mm-hmm. about gender roles mm-hmm. that, um, you know, men go out and earn money, women stay at home and do caring and you, you kind of perform these roles. But at the same time, they knew that my brother wasn't ever going to go out and get a job or do things like that. So I was kind of simultaneously be t- being told, oh, be yeah. a good girl, be feminine. But also, all these things he's not going to do, you're you going to do. do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've, you've got to do really well at school. You've got to be really successful. You're carrying the yeah, hopes you, of the family. You, you, you've kind of got to be a boy and a girl. Yeah. But it, And it also felt a bit like every time I did do something he wouldn't do, I was stealing it from him kind of thing. So, and I think it just got too much. And I wanted I wanted to drop out in some ways. And, and I suppose in a way as well, I wanted to be ill like him kind of mm-hmm. you know I think there were all those kind of pressures mm-hmm. plus I don't I, 
I'd always been quite a plump girl and it had always been pointed out to me like there was there, there, were, there used to be a cartoon character in the 80s a fairy called Victoria Plum oh. which I used to get called Victoria Plum at school and oh. it was and I wasn't like huge but I was you said you developed early so maybe you had this kind of rounded yeah. soft feminine body young yeah yeah mm-hmm. but then there were all these other factors and then on, so there were quite serious factors in terms of stress I was feeling at home but there are also kind of factors that you might see as trivial like I read a couple of young adult novels at the time um one was a sweet valley high one called the perfect what's it what was it called I can't remember the exact title but one of the characters in it Robin who's really fat goes on a diet and then everyone likes her and she's amazing and it was and, she, and um, I think they did a, a follow-up where she develops anorexia probably because the book had such a big effect. But um, but that book really grabbed me. And then I read um, Deborah Hortzig's novel, Second Star to the Right, which is an anorexia novel based on the author's experience. And I'm sure she wrote it in a kind of, I'll prevent anyone going the way I did. But I just read it and wanted to be like the character in it. And I actually think that's quite common with anorexia. Like... Um, Maya Hornbacker's Wasted. I know lots of people who've read that and felt like, yeah, that really fueled my anorexia. And those are quite embarrassing things to admit to as well, because it's that social contagion thing or that, oh, I'm easily influenced. And nobody would want to say, oh, I, I became anorexic because I read a book. Just as in the same way as people don't want to say, um, oh, I got gender dysphoria because I spent a lot of time on TikTok or yeah. mm-hmm. Tumblr mm-hmm. talking to people. But these things do get in your head and they do have a kind of, Huge. If you're stressed and all these other things, it it can look like a coping mechanism. And I kind of did want to be like this girl in the book who gets really ill, yeah. even though the book was meant to be telling you, oh, it's terrible. Yeah. It, yeah. it looked quite attractive yeah. to me. There's a, I want to touch on that because you mentioned how even in the treatment where you had a group, there was like this competitive aspect to it. And yeah. I think people who develop eating disorders around control and precision and self-deprecation and self-deprivation tend to have this kind of like highly intelligent, almost perfectionistic personality. And sometimes it feels like there's almost an endurance sport quality to it. Like how tough can I be? How much can I put myself through before I give in? Like my willpower is going to be strong. So there's this interesting way when like, Physically, you are embodying less and less space, so you're actually frail, but you tell yourself that you have this mental toughness. Like, there's this interesting juxtaposition between, like, how little and weak you're becoming. I mean, I struggled with disordered eating, too, but... But then you you believe you are so strong because you have this mental willpower. Like that's a really interesting and weird metaphor through the body or something. Like I'm sure you've thought about and written about that. What what comes to your mind when you think about that aspect of it? Yeah, I think it's it's like this weird way in which anorexia kind of it's like this tug of war between kind of stereotypes of masculinity and femininity. It's like this kind of weak, frail, but also you're kind of rejecting all these gender norms of being like the fertile, curvy, Ooh. compliant woman. You're actually, you're really annoying a lot of people with your behavior. You're, be, you're saying no in a very extreme way, which is very anti-feminine. So it's this kind of really weird kind of 
frail, tiny, sort of submissive way of actually doing something that's very kind of dramatically setting boundaries and refusing boundaries yeah. and and refusing food is very kind of it's it's very extreme and people find find it quite provocative and yeah. kind of quite enraging at an extreme level they do wow mm-hmm. they do so you see a lot of overlap with the gender thing when you start thinking about this and writing about this in in 2014. And then you said, I had a lot of pushback saying that actually this gender dysphoria experience is totally not something you can understand. Um, And you said something in one of your articles, someone had said this is demeaning or something to the experience. And you said demeaning to who? You don't mean demeaning to the anorexics. Like, can you expand on that? I thought that was a really good point when I read it. I kind of, I was listening to the article and I kind of chuckled out loud. And yeah. It was a really good point. I think it's kind of people say that they um, don't, they're really against mental health stigma, but actually people support mental health stigma yeah. quite a lot. They're, they will say um, anorexics, they're mad, they're mentally ill, like not like people with gender dysphoria. And it's this way in which um, people will go on and on about like, evidence that for transphobia in the same way as evidence for um, homophobia is the fact that it used to be listed as a mental illness and that's terrible but like what are you saying about people who have something that is listed as a mental illness and kind of are you saying they're lesser people or that they're not serious people or that their pain doesn't have a political context which or a social context and it's kind of it's this deciding that you're just your opinion isn't valid if it's put into that box marked eating disorder because it's a, you you're just not in your right mind it's it's very well, it's, it's actually th- yeah it's very stigmatizing I, it reminds me of the fact that the ICT the international classification for diseases they took gender dysphoria out of the mental health chapter and they put it into the sexual health chapter and they specifically say because it would stigmatizes them to be in the yeah. mental health and it's like but that's stigmatizing for people with mental health issues yeah that's it, yeah. it's absolutely it's it's insulting what, what, yeah. how, kind of how dare they say we don't want to be in this chapter as if there's something wrong with the people who are in this chapter. Like, should they be ashamed? Yeah. The people who've got... It, it, it's, it's, it's extraordinary that they so openly stigmatised people with mental illness with that move and said it. Said, basically, yeah. we, don't, we don't want to stigmatise people with gender dysphoria with the label of a mental health disorder. Yes. But they're happy to stigmatise people with mental health disorders with the mental health. Yes. Mm. Yeah. And I think that attitude can make it much harder to explore the roots of yeah. eating disorders because you're not seen as a credible person. And it's so easy for people, if you're saying something that's inconvenient to them, not necessarily wrong, but just inconvenient, they can say, oh, that's your eating disorder speaking or like you're, you're, not, you're not well yet. You don't know what you're talking about. And... I'm very interested that you're against, from what I can gather, you're against force feeding, which an awful lot of people who've worked with gen with eating disorders say that there comes a point where somebody with a, a very low weight needs to be fed because they've effectively lost their mind. Do, do you know what I mean? That's often the kind of yeah. the argument, as well as we're keeping them alive. There's there's two reasons, you know what I mean? But you won't get any sanity until they're of a certain weight, as well as the fact 
it, they are dangerously low weight. And so we ha- that is the arguments that I know for, for yeah. force feeding. And I think it is really, really difficult to make that call. I, I would say that certainly my experience of force feeding, nothing else was tried. There was no Ooh. other kind of therapy, no other talking, no other support. And actually, there were, I think looking back, there were things I was willing to, to talk about and things I would have been willing to look at but um but it was immediately like you're at a low weight we're just going to force feed you and it was done in quite a a deliberately punitive yeah. way just kind of you're not going to have any visitors you're not going to have any you're not going to have anything to read or anyone to talk to until you've gained a certain amount of weight wow. and that's weird and they, they used like the kinds of interventions that could help you feel better about yourself as a person like friendships as an incentive like that's very weird yeah yeah and it's also i think people need to think about just how how violating force feeding feels like to actually be pinned down and have something shoved into you that kind of will make changes your body and you know i I still feel uncomfortable thinking about it you know that it it they're forcing something into you that will change your shape and that will make you grow and you know, it, it's it's a really horrible. You know, it's it's an invasion of bodily boundaries. Yeah, and I think it can be very, very traumatizing in and of itself to people who are already quite traumatized by other experiences. And yeah, I I, I mean, I I know the kind of if they're at a very low point, there's this kind of like, well, you know, they can't make a decision for their health until they're at a certain weight. But I know sort of women who've been force fed, and it's kind of they weren't given the option or the space to make other decisions about that. And I think you can't recover unless you're feeding yourself, yeah, unless you're completely. making that decision. And certainly, I mean, I've known a couple of women who've died of anorexia and they'd, they'd both been force-fed when they were younger and that clearly that treatment hadn't sort of brought them to a state where they had kind of thought, I'm going to get better now. It, it had added to the trauma and it had added to this sense your body isn't your own kind of, you know, where other people just take it over. And that can actually entrench a kind of, no, my body is mine and I'm not going to let anyone do that to me again. And it can make you feel that after you've been force fed, you can feel that it's like people have taken away the choice that you had to kind of determine your own survival and determine your own growth. And it's kind of... Yeah. And it, it can fe- it just feels very humiliating in that way as well. But it, I, I just think psychologically, it's a really extreme way of treating people. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for the show. To take an even deeper dive and support the show, join our listener community for access to exclusive content, practical tools, and resources supporting gender and identity exploration. We're so grateful to our sponsor, Genspect, an international organization which offers an alternative to WPATH, providing a range of education, resources, and supports to anyone impacted by gender distress. Genspect unites many different organizations globally and gives voice to thousands of previously untold stories. For more info, visit genspect.org. And thank you to our sponsor, Rhyme. Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics is a non-profit organization 
dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And now back to the conversation. Uh, I've thought about this a lot, and I think it's another example of treating the symptom as though it's the cause. It's a okay. working backwards yeah. kind of thing. And, and I mean... I'm sure you have much more to share and experience around this because eating disorders are not my specialty, but I've thought a lot about the kind of like the way the bodily autonomy question feeds into this. And if some young people are struggling with eating disorders because they're trying to use this as one meager way to control something about their life and you take that last bit of control away from them forcefully, it does feel like a real defeating kind of experience and I would imagine that part of the process for treating eating disorders is helping a person to think about their body as something they want to nourish from a place of care and love, which is not the same as I just have to make myself take in nutrients or I'll die. Like that's a very different mind state. But but to push back on both of you here, <laughs> the, um, the, the, the from what I know, and I, I have worked with quite a few anorexic people, that steel trap mind, that shutter, it's it's as it's not even a brick wall, it's a steel wall where they are not listening to you, if you follow me. They're not listening to anybody. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? It's just so rigid. And if they're in a dangerously low weight, we have very, very, very little to work with. And why I highlight this is because I think people don't really understand how horrific it is when you have a very deep eating disorder. And it does equate to somebody with very deep gender dysphoria. And of course they would have mastectomies. And of course they would. Absolutely. It's of a, it's of a you know, it's the same thing in many ways. I, I think. think we're talking yeah. about a difference of degrees, right? Like I think you're talking about when people are at a, a mortally low weight and they refuse to eat, then if you don't keep them alive, something they may not make it, right? I think you're talking about a certain degree of a disorder eating. But I think as well, you have to make sure that you are offering people the other support that they would need to be able to accept their body, their growing body in space and in the culture that's around them. And I don't think that's necessarily in place for a, a lot of adolescent girls. And I think ide- ideally it would be in place, but it's it's actually, it's it's such a political thing and it's also such a personal thing and it can be related to friendship groups and family dynamics and also the kind of school you're going to and the way the way boys behave there and all these different things which medical professionals can't manage all of that and change all of that and if you're just being made to gain weight it's just putting you back out there in the body that you felt was at most at risk in oh, the first yeah. place and what do you think, if, if you're comfortable, what do you think pulled you out of it? Only if you're comfortable telling us, do you, do, you, do you have an analysis of what pulled you out, presuming that you did pull out of the eating disordered mindset? Um, it's quite hard to kind of think. I mean, it's, I think I struggled for, I think as with quite a lot of people who kind of, come out of it I struggled with bulimia and binge eating for a while after the anorexia so I kind of went through this treatment program in Oxford and I moved I lived in a YWCA while I was in the treatment there so I went out 
And I think being in a woman-only space maybe helped quite a lot and having a bit of independence, being being away from college, away from my family and just kind of having time to myself to that. But I still really struggled with with it, kind of. I sort of went, and I don't think it's that unusual, I went from one extreme of kind of being starving myself and cutting myself off from everyone to like binge eating and I became quite promiscuous for a while and drank quite a lot and kind of and it was almost like this kind of like Pendulum. fine you know if I'm if I'm not allowed to be this I'll be right. this kind of thing is that what you know that kind yeah. of it was a, a similar kind of aggression almost yeah kind of, and, it, and it took me quite a long time to kind of um equilibrium stage of feeling it's like yeah. complete restriction uh, versus yeah. abandon complete abandon uh, where do you find yeah. that middle ground and I think it it can be quite kind of how you that problem of kind of finding who you are as a woman because I think when I was I was in my early 20s when my period started again and it was almost like I'd I'd missed the boat on adolescence kind of yeah. like I hadn't got through gone through all these processes and all these experiences wow. that other girls had been through yeah and I felt this desperate oh my god I've got to catch up god. I'm really behind kind of thing and that's another thing another thing I think when people talk about pressing pause on puberty it's kind of like it's a social stage mm. you know if you're not going through it in your teens you're missing you can't it. you know if you're in your early 20s and you've left home and you're suddenly like oh my god I'm getting breasts and periods and I I want to kind of start having relationships. It's really hard to catch up and you feel really immature and you don't know what you're doing. And it's... Oh, my God. It took me a, it took me a long time to pull the guitar, I think. Yeah. Kind of. And did, did feminist... Maybe I'm taking a dive, but it did feminist, feminist thinking shape your fight back or something? No? I, I think it did, but... Um... I think it's helped me more in recent years, really, Think the way I think. I think the way I kind of relate to my body is always changing. I think that's one of these things where I think sometimes when you're younger, you can get, well, when I was younger, I had this kind of narrative that if I get these eating disorders out of the way, I'll have this body and I'll be happy in it and that'll be me and I'll be this sorted person. And I think it's a message you sometimes get in mm. body positivity or even body neutrality. Mm-hmm messages but actually um your body's changing all the time yeah. and you're always kind of trying to catch up with it you know then I get to my 30s and I got pregnant and I had a miscarriage and then I got pregnant again and, and it's all these things that you're going through with your body and you're kind of working out what your body means and and even now it's kind of like I've you know in my early 40s I had my last child when I was 40 and then it was like, oh, I've got my body back. I'm going to start exercising and my body's going to be for me. And then it's suddenly like, oh, I can't believe I've got menopause coming now. It's just kind of, I'm just working out <laughs> just what my body it is. <laughs> I'm just sorting it. And you, you're never quite there because also attitudes towards your body and what it means are always changing as you age, as a woman particularly, I think. And yeah. it's kind of, and you have to kind of accept that you are this body in a particular social and cultural and historical context. Yes. And you're, all, you're always working it out and you're always negotiating it. And one of the things I think with, I think with both anorexia and with gender dysphoria, there's this desire to kind of make your mark on what your body means and insist that everyone else goes along with it. Mm, and yeah. when the rest of the world says, no, I don't think that's what it means. I don't think that's what you're... You're, you're outraged because you think it's a denial of yourself. But yeah. your body's just always in 
in relation to everyone else at, at all the time and it's always changing so yeah there's no finish line we whether it's personally or in terms of how you want others to perceive you or like your relationship with your body or what your body can do and not do like the limitations yeah of your, like it's a, a constantly evolving process that that's what's so particularly scary about making permanent medical decisions about something that's obviously yeah. so in flux yeah mm. I know I, I, I was barely, barely comfortable with my body, kind of had come around to it. Then I had babies and it was like, oh, what was all this? There's a whole few years of really strange coming around to your body. Then the kind of babies were growing up and now I'm 48 and I'm like, oh, my God, my body's just completely changed in the last year or two. It's like, oh, so this is this is presumably the middle-aged body or whatever it is it's just changed I was like crikey I didn't have a second to just yeah relax think, with my body you know, like yeah I'm 47 and okay. like it's, it's a, but um and one of I was, I was talking to my partner about this earlier today and when I was I was researching things people wrote about women in the menopause um for my book and kind of there was um there's a book in um in the 60s. I always forget whether it's called Feminine Forever or Forever. I think it's Feminine Forever. And it was written by a doctor to promote um, HRT. And it's actually a really misogynistic book that basically says that women fall apart when they hit the menopause. They stop being like proper women and they need HRT to make them feminine again. And it says like the male body is in smooth continuity throughout its, you know, throughout time. Whereas the female body's got all these changes and then eventually it crumbles to pieces when it hits about 40. You know, it's Yikes. this kind of, there is this way in which um, female bodies have these particular, there's, there's a lot of drama going on and a lot of change going on that there isn't in quite the same way with male bodies, I think. Yeah. And, and then you've got a medicine which treats the male body as a default and female bodies is basically a bit... Uh, Medicine and businesses that basically treat female bodies as a bit of an inconvenience that gets Not in men. the way with having babies and having menopause and just, for God's sake, why can't you just stay in one place and just be normal? <laughs> and it's just, but that's not what our bodies are like. They're always changing. And Yeah, yeah. even in like um, sports science research about like different types of exercises, researchers are always having this debate about whether or not to include women in the studies because if a woman is in a different part of her menstrual cycle it affects things like performance so we we are always changing even prior to menopause or prior to perimenopause which is the new yeah. version yeah. of like get scared oh, about yeah. menopause yeah. um it, it's interesting i mean we we are whether we like it or not, we live in cyclical changing patterns yeah. and we have to learn to work with our yeah. bodies in a way that kind of honors that. It can even, you know, you can be upset about cramps, but I also think there's a lot of amazing and beautiful things that we have access to because of these cycles yeah. that should not be treated like some horrible annoyance. I mean, there's a place for that sometimes, but I think it's disingenuous to frame these female cycles as only some terrible thing to loathe. No, and I think so. One of the things that kind of made me feel sort of pride and in my body was having children. And I think if you say that a lot of the time, it's oh my god, like do you think all women exist to have babies, or do you think you you know your destiny is just to be a baby making machine? And obviously, I don't think that. But it is an amazing thing that your body can do these things and. 
And I think, you know, when I was younger, I I didn't think about these things at all. I just wanted to like be fixed in one place. But to keep the options open to do these things with your body is is important. Because you just don't know how you're going to feel in 5, 10, 15 years time because so much can change. Yeah. Both with your body and how other people around you relate to it and how safe you are. Do you think that, uh, I mean, this is going to be a little out there, but I'm wondering, I know you, you take a political lens often, you know, you do a lot of feminist analysis and that's not maybe exactly the way I tend to look at things, but I do wonder if there's some kind of deep psychological fear of, or somewhat envy of what women's bodies can do that could play a role in some of the misogynistic things we see. Like it would be very, very subconscious, right? Because I think on the surface, when we see highly misogynistic behavior, it's often demeaning of women things. But it is so amazing that women bring life through our bodies that I wonder, do you think there's some deep rooted, like kind of jealousy or something about that, that could exist in the deep, deep collective consciousness of men or something? I know it's out there, just throwing it out there. And I think there's there's quite a lot of theories that suggest because he I mean if you look just at historical and religious narratives of how life is created, yeah. so much of it is based around making it look like men do all the work and women are just potting soil. Like if you look at you mm. have all these sort of medical just even medical descriptions of reproduction sort of often have like the noble adventurous sperm and this like (laughs) passive blobby egg that does nothing at all when the whereas the female body is doing so much you know and i've never met a noble sperm but well no and you, you had like this kind of yeah, aristotle kind of had this kind of like men provide the life principle and women are just this kind of incubator kind of thing the meat of it yeah Mm. and you know and in the bible it's kind of like god creates people not Mm. and eve is secondary but it and it's this and you've had um it's an old can't remember exactly when it's from that but older medical texts sort of even doing little depictions of the sperm as though it has a tiny human kind of embedded in it kind of that it's not like splitting up cells at all and Mary O'Brien wrote a book like called the Politics of Reproduction. I think this was in the early eighties, and she like discusses all these things that they. And she argues that um, before modern medicine, you know, men didn't really know how reproduction worked, and women obviously knew that they were the mothers of their children. But men had this real uncertainty about whether they were the fathers, and you can actually kind of trace a lot of policing of female sexuality. To, the, to this kind of desire to kind of know that your mighty sperm is like carrying on your lineage, whereas women are just this kind of passive breeding stock for you. And I think a lot of it does kind of degrade female reproduction. And I think we've been encouraged as well, just, I think we, we've been encouraged to like see ourselves in that because um, women have been mistreated because of their capacity to get pregnant and because we've often not had choice about whether or not we get pregnant or whether we continue with the pregnancy. I think there mm. are women who see it as a disadvantage or something to be quiet about or if you talk about it too much, 
you'll be seen as this conservative um, woman yeah. who just wants to like be passive and stay in the kitchen giving birth nonstop. For... Sorry, that, that's mm-hmm. not an image. I know what you mean. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. but it's this kind of like women are frightened that if you take pride in it, yeah, then that's like volunteering yourself to be, to you know, to be to the alt-right kind of thing. I, yeah. just... I, I think we underestimate how much internalised misogyny we have because we, we talk a lot about misogyny, but I think we underestimate the likes of myself who who was a complete misogynist, for example, as a child. And then later on, it wasn't until I had a baby that I suddenly thought women's bodies are amazing. I, I It completely transformed my relationship with being a woman. When I had a baby, it was like, oh, my God. And I really, without sounding, well, sounding grand, grandiose, I remember distinctly thinking, oh, I can see why men went to war. And we were just yeah. busy doing the really powerful thing. They were off pretend fighting. Yeah. Like, we were we were creating babies. Like, yeah. Yeah. I think it is, it's really important to be able to celebrate that. Yeah. Without being told, oh, you just think that women are passive baby makers because we can do so but much that's else a, that's such a misogynistic be, thing yeah. to say because it's a phenomenal thing that we yeah. do and it's it's kind of and we've also been told oh you can do one thing or the other you, you can have babies or you can you can use your womb or you can use your mind and obviously you can use both these things and um that's probably quite threatening to men who have wanted to devalue female reproduction mm. yeah it, it's another like throwing the baby out with the bathwater thing because i think you know, in certain contexts, women were in a degrading way made to feel like mothering is all they could do, like as though it was not important. And then when we had the option to do more than that, we kind of thought, oh, well, that's so passe, forgetting that actually, if we frame mothering in a more kind of proper way maybe a more empowering way even though i hate that term like there's something really amazing about it rather than it just being this like thing that you do if you want to be a traditional woman it's more than that yeah and men were out there in in the wars fighting but also dying because stella was like (laughs) pretend fighting to be fair to the men (laughs) i I mean i think both people you know, bear a very difficult burden in their own way, men and women. Oh, they do. I suppose I felt like I can see why they need to have shows of power. Yes. Because we were doing such a powerful thing. And their show of power would need to be violence and overpowering other people. While we were like creating life, which was inside such a powerful thing. Yeah. But um, I, the way, where I was going, actually, when I was starting to talk about the misogyny was your book, mm. Hags, and what where, where it came from. And something you said, which really resonated with me, was you said when you were younger, you, I think you said this. Well, I certainly it happened to me. I remember I was uh, in a play I was watching a play and an older woman she'd be about my age I'd say now and I was about in my 20s and she had her top off and she she had her back to the audience and she was just showing her back but her back was kind of fat right now she wasn't a very fat woman she was you know what I mean like me (laughs) perfect and um I remember being horrified I remember looking at her back and how can she show this to the world oh my god like I was so I was I was really bothered by the fact that she wasn't basically young and gorgeous. 
and showing herself to the world. And that's that kind of misogyny. And that's where I'm kind of leading towards your book. And I'm so thrilled you've 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 written it. So tell us about it. Yeah. So um, yeah, so this is a, a book about it's called Hags, the demonization of middle aged women. And it's about negative portrayals of middle aged women, the way the, that they're demonized, both, you know, the attitudes towards how they look, but also attitudes towards their opinions and their politics and their involvement in public life. And I think um, one of the reasons it kind of the idea came to me, it was, um, it's like, you know, that meme about the leopards eating people's faces party, like that I never thought leopards would eat my face, says a woman who voted for leopards eating faces party. It was like, I felt like being middle-aged was like that. It was like, oh my God, all these attitudes I had when I was younger now they're being applied to me. Like, I didn't think that would they? happen. <laughs> like, you know, all these views about older women that I used to have. Now I'm getting them. And it's just, and it made me think of how when I was younger, I think I saw feminism as this kind of like the thing that would enable me not to be like my mum and women of her generation. It would like, it would give me this pathway to be someone unique Oof. and someone different and not just like, some mum or some housewife or whatever and um and you know and that is that internalized misogyny that you don't see it you don't think about it that way at the time you think you're thinking of yourself as an individual but actually it's this fear that's really within you of your older self like I mustn't become that I mustn't want to be that and I think maybe in some ways it's related to my own desire to kind of freeze myself in time and not want to grow physically is this kind of like becoming like older women and you see the the attitudes people have towards older women, you know, when I, you know, in the 80s, sort of when I was growing up, you know, people didn't talk about Karens and TERFs and mums letters, but they talked about mothers, mother-in-laws a lot. And they talked yeah. about shrews and there was all this kind of like, you know, you get on sitcoms, the kind of, the you know, the, the man who just wants to live his life and be hilarious. And he's always held back <laughs> by this miserable older women, woman. And then it's like you get there and you think... Actually, it's because older women are doing all this stuff. They've got all these kind of responsibilities. They're kind of blamed for so much. They're blamed for holding boundaries. They're blamed for saying no. And they actually do a lot of stuff that other people just don't want to do and then are really resented for it. Mm. And then and then it also got me thinking about, you know, it's really funny that it just seems at this point in life when you're suddenly deep, Deemed to be kind of not reproductively useful anymore and not as sexually attractive as you once were. Suddenly, people are saying, "Oh, and your political views—they're really terrible." And it's just your generation, you know. The next generation of younger women, when they're your age, they'll be great. They'll be really <laughs> sorted. It's just you. And then, but if you look throughout history, these attitudes have always been there to that cohort of women. This idea that they're these miserable, shrewish prudish wow. women and actually is this really that we're this terrible cohort or are we actually is this kind of a life cycle thing and is there actually Ooh. an intent is the, is it a way in a way kind of if we talk about patriarch is it intentional that women are divided from one another generationally so we don't kind of connect and so we're, we're kind of kept away from each other and and you have this system, and I do think it's related to like self-hatred in younger women, that young women don't want to become us. Not all, not all of them. You know, there yeah. are, you know, there are, there are younger women I talk to for the book who 
had much better attitudes towards older women than I had when I was younger. But my attitude towards older women when I was younger was quite bad. I don't think I was unique in that. And it was this fear of becoming that. And how can you have a feminism that's for all women and in which we kind of support one another if so many of us are in fear of the women that we are just inevitably going to become? And it doesn't matter what you do to your body, any how you modify it, you will get older. It's just mm. going to happen to you. And, and you have to kind of come to terms with that not just with older women, but with yourself as well. Yeah. And it's kind of the same thing. And your body. Mm. Yeah. Sorry, i just gone on and on. First. No, <laughs> no. no. Great. I want to know, I couldn't help when you were talking and when you were writing Hags, did you, did, had, you, had you started it when the Karen thing arrived and did, did you combust when the Karen thing arrived? Yeah. Because I did. Was, <laughs> the Karen thing was, a, was part of like what made me think about it. Um, and I found it quite hard writing about the Karen thing because um, there is the, the kind of racism element to it. So this way in which it has been used for black women as a term to criticise a particular type of racism in older white women. And, you know, you want to address, you want to talk about that, the way in which it's used in a misogynistic way without saying, oh, but, you know, older white women aren't racist and black women shouldn't be able to, like, call this out. And I found it quite tricky kind of writing about that. But there absolutely is a way in which the Karen thing has been used to make older women, mainly white women, but not just white women, feel that they can't complain, feel that they must be more compliant. It's stigmatised complaining Oof, in a way that yeah. is really restrictive. You know, you, you see articles, yeah, I've quoted an article, I think it's about congestion or something like like traffic or something but like the, the woman writing that I don't want to sound like a Karen and and it's just like given Jesus. what is happening in the world and levels of misogyny we don't want to create this state where women feel they have to be apologising for making complaints and apologising and and obviously some men have absolutely loved the Karen thing and loved yeah. being able to like call women names and dismiss legitimate political complaints. I saw a woman was complaining about um, The Guardian giving an obituary to Peter Sutcliffe and she got called a Karen for complaining about that. And it's just like, Whoa. I think, you know, I don't think it's Karen-y to complain about the Yorkshire Ripper being given an obituary. <laughs> but it's just become this way of... Just, yeah, another yeah. way of silencing women it, with it's opinions. So much, it's so yeah. much like the mother-in-law kind of thing it's just and it's it's a way of sidelining women politically and I think so I wrote about the Karen thing and also the the way in which mum's netters are portrayed as well this idea that yeah I think there was a recent protest where someone had a a placard saying keep mum's net out of politics and it was just kind of um wow you are targeting with Karen and with mum's netters you're targeting a particular tranche of women who tend to be kind of from late 30s to 50s and kind of, you know, and, it, you know, is it that coincidental that this tends to be a group of women who have always been sidelines, who are, who become less and less visible in popular culture and who have always been told to shut up and know their place and that they're a bit obsolete anyways. And, you know, and these are women who are falling behind, um, in terms of pay, these are women who are doing lots of unpaid work. 
And it's the same cohort, even if you go back a long way, who would be most targeted for witch hunts. It's this particular... Yeah. From, we, de- from which, we demonize yeah. these women so we don't have to listen to them. From, and we, which, from witch to bitch to turf to Karen. That's where we yeah. kind of go. Yeah. yeah. And it's just, and it's always, oh, but no, this time they really are bad. And it's just really, oh. you know, it just, just seem, I don't really think that's true. And, yeah. and you see men who have such confidence that when the next generation of younger women of women become our age, they won't they won't say no, they won't be difficult or complainy like us, that they won't be on mum's net moaning. And they will, you know, because we'll always have stuff to moan about and we'll always want to set boundaries. But there's this conviction that um, we're the witches who are going to die out and then everything will be great. One day we'll learn to shut up and put up with it all. Yeah, because, you know, one way to solve feminism would be not having women who are upset about anything men are doing. But I don't think that's <laughs> going to happen, really. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting. I wonder, does is that where a lot of girls come from? I, I, I would say it was for myself, that kind of feeling of I, I had learned that women should women were irritating or women were annoying. I don't know why, but I I did, I had registered middle-aged women were not something yeah. to aspire to, yeah. if you follow me. I, I, I would imagine if you're 13 or you're, if you're 18, there'd be few middle-aged women that you'd look up to. Maybe I'm wrong. I'd yeah. imagine that's yeah. true. Yeah, and I've got memories of like when I was quite young, just things like... um my grandma cooking a meal for us and people complaining about the meal and my grandma getting quite upset about it. And then everyone going, oh, look at her going off on one kind of thing. And it was this kind of lack of gratitude, but also irritation that that my grandma was showing her feeling. And it was that at the time, you know, you want to be with the high status people. So there I am agreeing with everyone going, yeah, grandma's being such a cow. And it's only now I look back and think, God, you know, I wish I'd sided with my grandma, kind of, you know, in these, and there are these like little kind of, and they're kind of family dynamics. And then there's a much bigger dynamic that I think when you're a younger woman, younger woman, certainly I found it, there is more status. Well, the people who are sort of denigrating older women, often men who are younger and older men, they have more status and sometimes it could be more t- short-term gain in aligning yourself with them and kind of joining in the, uh, yeah, I'm never, never going to be shrew like that. But um, And then you get there and think, oh, no, here I am. Yeah. <laughs> Just like the rest of them. Yeah. Um, I'm, when is your book coming out? The 17th? No, today's the 17th. Yeah, it's the 2nd of March. The 2nd of March. Okay. I think listeners, by the time this episode comes out, they will be able to get your book, which is really exciting. Um, is there a subtitle? I know it's called Hag. Uh, it's called Hag. Hags. Um, the, de- the demonization of middle-aged women. Okay. Well, if our listeners are interested, I think they should definitely give it a read. Um, Victoria, is there anything else that you wanted to share before we wrap up today? Um. No, it's been really lovely talking to you. I'm sorry for waffling on. Oh, no. Oh, no. Don't. It's been lovely. Yeah, it has been really been nice chatting with you. You as can, well. Can I, just, can I ask just one question? Is there anything that you think that we do need to teach young girls that they won't go to war with their body? Or do you just see it as societal? This is a massive cultural thing. Um, I don't know. 
it's probably just pushing someone out. I'm reading at the moment, it's a book that's not out yet, but it will be in April, actually. I've got a copy. This is this is Rachel Hewitt's um, In Her Nature. And it, it's about the history of women in nature and running, but it's combined with her own experiences as a runner. And she mentions her own experiences of anorexia and kind of growing in her body. And I think I found that book really helpful just... It was as a narrative of understanding how women occupy space and how we. Um, I just think if we understand where we sit in relation to men and our, and how. Sorry, I'm not making yeah. us. No, 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 you are. Um, sometimes I think understanding the politics of how women occupy space and the ways in which we are meant to retreat into ourselves when we hit puberty and the way that um, girls are objectified and the pressures we're under. I think can be really helpful in making us feel comfortable in our bodies because we understand it's not us. Like this discomfort isn't some seed that was planted in us. It's, you know, we're not born feeling this way. Wow. It's a me it's messages we get from other people. I and it's so. to do with how safe we feel and how we feel we relate to other people. And I think, although in some ways it's quite difficult to realise that because you realise that you're always you know, you're maybe never going to have this kind of perfect wandering through the world, feeling totally safe and totally secure and and that everyone's going to love your body. But to understand that and to understand the problem isn't you, it's not something, it's not your identity. You know, you're not, hating your body is not an identity. It's oh. a way you've been made to feel and you shouldn't feel that way. It's, Thank you. I suppose that's hard to say. But... Oh, that was beautiful. Yeah. I get it. Well, thank you, Victoria. That was that was really, really moving. It's lovely to talk to you. Thank you for joining thank us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. Listener support means a lot to us. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. For more information, visit widerlenspod.com. There you'll learn about joining our listener community, how to contribute to our show, and where to find us on social media. Our discussions are for educational purposes and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.